to the moon for good. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Artemis 1 mission has passed its halfway mark, the uncrewed Orion capsule slinging past the far side of the moon. The next big step is making it back to Earth safe. The mission ushers in a new era of lunar exploration with astronauts making the trip next. NASA wants to establish a permanent base at the moon. Are we any closer to that goal now? We'll chat with one space policy analyst about the sustainability of the moon. Then scientists are already preparing for long-term visits to the moon and trying to grow plants in lunar soil. We'll talk with the NASA scientists leading the charge and what researchers have learned so far. Our future on the moon. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. NASA's Artemis program aims to return humans to the lunar surface, the first time in more than a half century. The agency's plans include a long-term presence on the moon and in lunar orbit. While Artemis 1 is a big step in that direction, there's still work to be done. To talk about our future on the moon, we're joined by Laura Forsick, a space policy analyst who spends a lot of time thinking about our future in space. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on again. Well, before we start talking about the kind of long-term plans for humans at the moon, I think we, this is something we talked about on Twitter recently, we have to talk about these images that Orion is beaming back from the moon. I mean, these are incredible, right? They are amazing. If your audience has not yet seen them, NASA is tweeting them out. But even better, NASA has a Flickr account that they are uploading high-resolution pictures. It is just incredible. It's views of the moon that we don't usually see because the moon is tidally locked to Earth. That means that the moon always has the same side facing Earth. So that very familiar view of the moon, we see a different view when we go behind it. It's completely different. And we've been seeing that. We've been seeing different illuminations, and we've been seeing the Earth and the Moon captured together and eclipsing, which is just incredible. Yeah, I know. I could stare at those images for days. And I, I think some people on on that were chatting about the images are saying that we need to put uh, some selfie cams on solar arrays for every spacecraft from now on, right? <laughs> we really do. We've got the technology now. You know, NASA invented these little cameras that are now in all of our phones, and it's only gotten better from there. And so we do have the technology. And believe it or not, I think China has been the one that's really popularized the idea of selfie cams. I know we've done it with other rovers and, and on Mars and and other spacecraft, but like it seems like there's now a competition between the United States and China on how to do the best space selfie. Well, that wasn't the primary goal of this mission, right? Is to take the best no, space selfie, not. right? <laughs> Artemis One <laughs> is really laying the groundwork for uh, astronaut missions, eventually uh, putting humans on the surface, and then a, a long-term presence on or at the moon. Um, how much closer does Artemis One get NASA to that goal? of having a permanent presence in the lunar sphere. I have to say that when you start out with a brand new mission, with a brand new rocket and a brand new capsule, you don't know how it's going to go. So I have been surprised at how well this mission is going. There is still a major milestone to be met that is testing the heat shields on Orion when it re-enters Earth. And, and that's going to be vital for bringing our astronauts back. But the launch was essentially flawless, just a little hydrogen leak that got fixed. And there's slight communications issues with Orion in space. But otherwise, 
because this mission, Artemis 1, takes us so much closer to Artemis 2, which is going to be the first mission with people on board. And I am so excited to see that because we have not seen people go to the moon since Apollo. So that first mission of with people on board, it's not going to land, but it's still going to go around the moon. And this mission here, Artemis 1, needs to prove everything. It needs to prove the radiation environment, the uh, life support systems, the communications, everything we need to get people on board so we're confident that everything is going to go well for Artemis 2. There are also some pictures coming from inside the capsule. I've got to say I'm a little jealous of those mannequins that get to take this ride and see those <laughs> those views um, for themselves there. Uh, but Laura, this is a mission that's kind of happening in parallel with other developments in the Artemis program as a whole that are going to be required to have that permanent presence at the moon, right? So so oh, the Orion capsule is one thing. There's also the, the lunar lander itself, and then also NASA's gateway, this, this kind of mini space station at the moon. Talk about how, how all of these elements are going to come together and create that permanent presence in cislunar space. There are a lot of elements that need to come together, and which is why this mission has been so delayed. The, the Artemis program as a whole has been so delayed because, for example, we need new spacesuits. The last time we went to the moon was 1960s and 70s, and those spacesuits that we used, they are no longer adequate. So we need to build new spacesuits. And by we, NASA has contracted two companies to do that. And so that is something that needs to be accomplished before we put humans to the moon. Another thing is that lander. So if you remember from the Apollo days, it was the LEM, the lunar module. NASA has contracted SpaceX to do the landing for Artemis 3 and 4. And so um, this is going to be a modified Starship. And if, if you've been following space news, especially news with the Starship program, you know that they've made really good progress, but they haven't been able to launch it to orbit yet. So Starship needs to prove that it can go to space safely to have people on board and be modified to land them on the moon and then bring them back again. Um, so there's there's elements like that. Also, the SLS, the Space Launch System itself, that rocket, that big rocket, takes a very, very long time to build. And there were a lot of delays with hydrogen leaks and other things. And so that is something to keep an eye on as well. Overall, this is a really good first step, but it's only the first step. It's the very beginning. So there's a lot of preparation happening on the side of the NASA astronauts, right? We don't know which astronauts are going to go on Artemis II and beyond, but they are training for these kind of missions. Um, but you've been doing uh, quite a bit of thinking and writing about when more than just astronauts get to go to space and, and the lunar surface. And, and your argument is that we should be thinking about that sooner rather than later. Talk a little bit about what we do need to be thinking about as it comes to getting off of this planet and and people other than astronauts getting the opportunity to kind of take advantage of these permanent presence in space. Well, first off, let's talk terminology, because I believe that anybody who goes to space is an astronaut. Okay. A lot of people disagree with me. So you can call them government astronauts. You can call them private astronauts. You can call them space tourists. You can call them commercial astronauts. Um, the initial missions are going to be government astronauts. That's how we saw it with low Earth orbit. So if you think back to the early space stations all the way to today, we have the International Space Station, and we also have a Chinese space station. And the ones that have primarily been going are government astronauts. However, we have seen commercial astronauts 
early as, as early as the 1980s, where uh, individuals not chosen by a government were paid to go by a sponsoring agency, usually their employer. And we've also seen in recent years private astronauts who pay their own way. For example, 20 years ago, we had Dennis Tito, the first quote-unquote space tourist, who paid his way to go to the International Space Station. And we've seen more and more of this recently with SpaceX and Axiom Space taking whole crews of commercial or private astronauts to the International Space Station. And now NASA is going beyond. NASA is not just going around the Earth. It's going to go to the moon and beyond. And we can completely expect that in time, it won't be immediate, but in time, we are going to see non-government astronauts follow in those footsteps. Initially, it probably will be uh, people sponsored by their employers or a sponsoring agency. Um, So for example, you being a communicator, a journalist, we've already seen one space journalist, a journalist who has gone to space, to Mir, in fact, in the 1980s with the Russians. And so now this is a whole new generation where they're not relying on government transportation or government hardware for that matter. We're going to see more and more of those opportunities open up for the non-traditional types of people that you might think might fly to space, whether that be wealthy individuals or people who are researchers or people who are communicators like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask who who would be uh, a good candidate for something like that. I, I envisioned researchers, obviously. Um, what about like engineers and, you know, people to build structures on, on the lunar surface, you know, could you imagine someone getting, you know, a contract to go and build a building on the moon? Absolutely. So this is definitely things that we need to think about because to date, most government astronauts have been doing things just like that. They've been building infrastructure just on a smaller scale. They've been acting as proxy researchers for researchers on the ground. They've been fixing the space toilets. I know you're a big fan of that. Um, So (laughs) these are the kinds of things that government astronauts have been trained to do. But there's no reason why commercial astronauts can't do those same things. In fact, with the retirement of the International Space Station somewhere around the end of this decade, we will also see commercial space stations coming on board, these contracts that have been awarded to private companies. And they're going to be flying their own astronauts to do just that, to build up infrastructure. Um, Because some of these concepts are modular. They're going to add on modules, just like the International Space Station was added on to. These commercial space stations can also be added on to. And we're going to see lots more of these more, um, you know, construction type jobs or, you know, more mundane jobs like fixing leaks. Um, these are the things that could definitely be done by a large group of people. And then you can think about things like we really do need professional communicators up there and professions of all different kinds. We need medical staff. We need hospitality staff. If Some of these are going to be space hotels. So really think broader. It won't be anytime soon, right? I'm not talking this decade, but it will come and it'll come faster than I think we realize. Mm-hmm. So you're saying I've got a chance, Laura. You've got a chance. I mean, you've got a chance. <laughs> We've been speaking with Laura Forsick. She's a space policy analyst. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. Still to come, plants in lunar soil, the experiment that could bring some greenery to the gray moon. Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. 
For the first time, scientists have grown plants in genuine lunar dirt. A team at the University of Florida used moon dust samples brought back by the Apollo astronauts to grow plants. This is a big deal, says NASA senior scientist Sharmila Bhattacharya, as it's a key step in establishing a permanent presence on the moon. I spoke with Sharmila earlier this year to talk more about the findings and how the ability to grow plants on the moon will help future lunar astronauts. Sharmila, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's a pleasure to be here. So this this is a very exciting experiment, and I, I, I'm very excited to hear all about it. Um, let, let's start at the beginning. What went into making this research possible? Where did you actually get this lunar dirt uh, that you attempted to grow these plants in? Yeah, it is a very exciting story and goes back to the 60s and 70s when during the Apollo era, you know, our astronauts were, were gathering samples from the surface of the moon to bring back to Earth. And uh, initially, some preliminary work was done back, you know, back in the day in the in the early 70s to show that, you know, there was no major toxic effect to plants or animal life from this uh, material. But because this material is so precious and nobody knew when we would be able to go back and get some more samples. So they have, for the most part, been kept, uh, you know, extremely carefully um, you know, in, in a way that, you know, the, their chemical uh, and physical structure won't be altered by the conditions on Earth. And uh, they've been stored like that um, at NASA Johnson Space Center. But of course, for science, you know, with very good justification um, and a lot of review, you know, little bits uh, of this material has been given over the years to scientists, both um, within the U.S., but also internationally. Why was it important to use actual lunar soil? I know there are, there are quite a few uh, engineers, um, you know, that, that use synthetic lunar regolith to do some engineering experiments. Why was it important to use actual soil or actual regolith from the moon for this experiment? Absolutely. Great question. So, you know, even though we do have lunar simulants as well as Mars, uh, you know, regolith simulants that we do use on Earth, and in fact, they're very useful because you can get them in larger quantities. So you can do a lot of preliminary testing and setup using the regular uh, using the simulant material um, and in fact this paper you know published by the university of florida uh, professors paul and furl uh, they did indeed use the simulant as a control but going back to your question brendan as to why do you actually need to use the real material the reason is that this the the actual lunar regolith material is you know, it is very similar to the simulant in terms of, you know, compositions and stuff by and large, but the lunar regolith itself does differ from the simulant in a few different ways that I will, uh, you know, tell you in a second. But also remember that on the surface of the moon, the regolith can be different on different parts of the moon. So it's actually very hard to have a simulant that represents all the possible regolith, uh, you know, compositions and 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 structures that you can get on the moon. So that's one point that that everything, you know, regolith in different parts of the moon will look and feel different. Um, the second thing is, you know, 
uh, some of the major differences, or not even major, but some of the important differences, I should say, between the simulant material and actual regolith has to do with, for example, how uh, some of the mature regolith uh, on the surface of the moon can be more uh, sharp. You know, it's sharp and abrasive, and also it is weathered by, uh, you know, solar wind and kind of radiation, um, you know, that's coming from uh, all around it uh, in the, the lunar environment and beyond. And so what happens is this material uh, gets embedded in glass. So so it's it's this agglutinate of various different, you know, iron and, and metal and uh, other chemical components that get encased in glass. And so it can be very jagged, it can be very sharp. And then the oxidation state of some of the metals like iron can be different. Uh, the nanophase iron that's present on the surface of the moon, the oxidation state can be different uh, again, depending on if it's mature uh, or, or younger uh, lunar material, uh, and therefore can be different from the simulant. But having said that, the simulant is a really good control material because it, it is very similar to the regolith. It's kind of like an average um, representative of the lunar material. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a lot of challenges that go into this. There's there's the geographical issue, right? Where where does this stuff come from? There's the structural issue of this stuff. Lunar regolith is very sharp and and unlike stuff that we have here on Earth. And then there's also like the chemical and biological makeup of it. It's not similar to what plants are used to here on Earth. This seems like a, a very hard hurdle for scientists to uh, to mount. But, you know, what were the, the results? Were you were you all able to grow something in such a challenging uh, substance? Absolutely, Brendan. And that's precisely uh, the reason I think that we're so excited with this result uh, is the fact that, you know, we really didn't know if plants would be able to grow uh, in this kind of material, you know, using it as a substrate to grow. And so the results were, in fact, that yes, all of the uh, seeds, you know, and this is the, using the Arabidopsis thaliana model plant, very commonly used on uh, in labs, you know, on earth for doing research with plants. And all of the seeds that were tested with these three different regolith samples uh, from Apollo 11, 12, and 17, uh, you know, all of these actually resulted in the Arabidopsis growing. So number one, that was very exciting as a result from this paper that, that all of these samples were able to um, uh, you know, uh, encourage uh, the growth of these plants. Now, one one thing I should state uh, is that while the regolith was the the substrate that the plant was grown in, of course we had you know the the group had supporting material. So, for example, they used um, uh, you know nutrient supplements just like you would on Earth, like you would use fertilizers and food, you know, plant food to, to allow the plants to grow and get the nutrients they need. So that was given to them. Uh, and of course, you know, light and, and other conditions, you know, the, the, uh, the, the gaseous environment that they need, all of that was provided to the plants, of course, as you would imagine. 
So number one, all of the seeds grew in all three different types of soils. Now, what was very interesting, though, is that the, the second part of the results of this paper showed that while the plants did grow in this material, they did show signs of stress. And they did show physical signs of stress when you looked at the plant and also when you looked at them at a molecular level. So when you took them and you took the cells and you broke open the cells and you looked inside for the DNA and the RNA and how the genes, uh, you know, which are the components within the DNA that actually make RNA and then protein that makes the plant cell function. Uh, when you looked at that detailed molecular signature, uh, what was seen is that at the molecular level also, the plant was showing signs of stress. And so that was interesting too, again, to be expected, because as you said earlier, this is a pretty unusual material, you know, it's jagged, it's, it, it can have these, you know, highly oxidized, you know, oxidizing components in it. And so the plants are definitely reacting to it and showing signs of stress, but they're able to grow. What is the next step? And then what is kind of NASA's goal with this? I, I'm, I'm, my assumption would be that NASA is not interested in growing ornamental plants on the moon, right? We don't care about <laughs> hedges or trees or anything. This is this is to grow food for, for future astronauts, right? I mean, is that is that where this is heading? And and if so, how what else needs to be done to make sure that we get there to kind of get over some of these challenges that you've outlined? Absolutely. So you're right. One very important use of these plants in the future will, of course, be to provide supplemental nutrition, for example, to the crew um, or to the inhabitants of, of you know, uh, these habitats, you know, that we have in space. And so, for example, you know, microgreens, etc., can provide a lot of nutrition and yet use, you know, very small amounts of resource to, to grow them. So yes, definitely using as a, a you know, supplement to nutrition is an important value. But, you know, something that we don't realize because we take for granted on the surface of the earth that we're surrounded by greenery and plants and flowers and all of that. Um, so we don't actually realize how much uh, we as humans rely on having this greenery around us for our, um, you know, quality of life, so to speak, you know, for our happiness, so to speak. So to give you an example, even on the International Space Station, where the crew can be there sometimes for months uh, on end, you know, they're away from their family, you know, they are working very hard. They're in this unusual environment, even though that is low Earth orbit and it's closer to Earth. However, what we have found and what the data shows is that the crew, you know, humans are very, very positively uh, stimulated by having plants around them. So, so a second, you know, important component to this, Brendan, is the fact that in addition to having them as a source of, you know, potential nutritional supplementation, uh, they are really there also to, to kind of help provide uh, in future, you know, and what we envision is that we will have plants in there, just like we have plants inside the house, not because we need them to eat, but because it, they make us comfortable and happy. And so there's that taste of home, you know, or that feel, the comfort of home uh, when you're so far away from your actual home. So, so there's also that benefit. 
Um, and then your the third part of your question, you know, what do we need to do to to make this a reality? Um, and that is a very good question because from the science and research aspect of it, this is a first study that we were just talking about, you know, that we, that we can have plants grow in this material. However, as we also talked about, the plants are showing signs of stress. So we need to optimize. We need to figure out, you know, what do we need to supplement to make these grow even better? Um, and, and actually, you know, are there different plants that will react differently? Are there some that would be even better suited to this environment, right? And so on. So yes, from the science and the research perspective, we have more work that we need to do, which is really what makes it all so exciting. Well, I'm, I'm hoping you don't come to me for any advice because I, I would not be uh, helpful at all if you looked at my backyard. But I didn't even I didn't even think about that as as a, a kind of psychological or, or social exactly. uh, benefit to having it there. You, you talk to some of these astronauts on the ISS when when they talk about their their gardening. They're so excited and so proud about it. Um, and and that I do want to ask you about that. Were there any lessons learned from, um, you know, some of these experiments of growing plants and vegetables on the International Space Station that went into into this research or will be used for, for this, this future research, as, as you've described? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100% yes. So in fact, what we're sort of seeing this as it's the stepwise approach. So we're using low Earth orbit, you know, the International Space Station, and before the space shuttle, as you may remember, Brendan, where we also used to do a lot of research on the shuttle, that then transitioned to the International Space Station. You know, we're hoping in the the, the next several years, then the commercial partners will bring on uh, stations in low Earth orbit that we can then continue this research on. And then, of course, with the surface of the moon. And so as in the stepwise approach, what we've learned from the International Space Station so far has been very, very valuable. And indeed, exactly as you say, is going to be the the stepping stone that we're going to use, you know, everything we've learned about how to efficiently water plants on the International Space Station, you know, what plants are growing. And as you may have seen, you know, we've grown uh, Arabidopsis as a model plant, yes, but also, you know, lettuce and um, radishes and, you know, tomatoes. And there are all these different, um, uh, you know, plants and, and crops, et cetera, that we've used on the International Space Station. And we're definitely going to use that information to help us as we go into this next, you know, step of NASA's goals of, of growing plants uh, beyond low Earth orbit. Super exciting, extremely impressive. You scientists are, are growing plants in lunar soil. I'm killing succulents here in my office. So that's uh, <laughs> off to you all. <laughs> Charmilla, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing this research with us. Happy to, to be a part of this. That was NASA senior scientist Sharmila Bhattacharya. Our conversation first aired June 14th. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. Are We There? It is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden-Creston. 
Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners, and on this Giving Tuesday, we invite you to fuel the show with a gift of support. You can do that at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>